You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you all here today. Please look at the person next to you and let them know we have reached the end of the end. Because we are finally at part three of our three-part series on the end times. And um, I'll be honest, when, when, we, when we first came in this morning, when we were worshiping, um, I kind of reached a point where I was going through a, a personal repentance of, of just kind of realizing, like I was looking through the notes, I was kind of prepping uh, yesterday, and I was reading through scripture, and I kind of realized, man, the tone has to change for what we're talking about today. And that's part of what I wanted to talk about. But I just want to make you guys aware that what I hope that you guys get from today is God really telling you, hey, this whole series, everything we're talking about, it's not just simply for clarification about how things are going to play out, but it's to get you excited for what the end is going to look like. And it's funny because I felt like the reason I was kind of self-checking myself this morning is because I realized... um, that's kind of the opposite mindset I had going into this message. You know, when I remember when, when Pastor Stan uh, first asked me if I was willing to preach today, uh, I was like, yeah, of course. You know, uh, we have so many great things going on. We love Denver, you know, worship night, uh, the prayer summit. We, we have the big event coming up. There's so many good things going on. Of course I want to help out. Of course I want to be willing to help you in this time. And he's like, great. Once I've gotten your ass, I'm going to remind you, you're speaking on Revelation. And I was like, oh, cool. Because I remember the first time I went into trying to read this book. And I was in high school. I had just given my life to Christ going into high school. So I was really for the first time trying to, trying to build my relationship with God. You know, and, and so when I was going into it for the first time, I think I was at a place that a lot of us are when we hear about the book of Revelation. You know, I think a lot of us can kind of think of those common terms or common themes that we think about when we think of the end times. Things like the, the four horsemen or, or, you know, Armageddon, you know, the beast that's going to come. And we think about all these bad things. And I'm thinking to myself in high school, after this, I'm going to have to tell my mom that we got to get one of those survival packs because it might be really bad. And so I get into this moment and, and I'm trying to prepare my mind. I'm like, Lord, when I read this, don't let my faith be shaken. Don't let me be freaked out. But, you know, let me understand what this book is supposed to be about. And in high school, I'll be honest, you know, number one, I didn't fully understand everything that I was reading. You know, there's so much imagery, so much stuff that's happening. But what struck me the most was when I opened the book and I'm reading the first chapter, verse two stands out to me and it says, blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And I remember kind of taking a step back. I'm like, oh, that's the opposite of what I was expecting to read. Now, that's a real positive and comforting note. Blessed are those who hear it. And so then when I'm reading along, I kind of, I'm I'm struggling to figure stuff out. But everything I understood about Revelation, you know, the beast, the horsemen, all those common things that I was aware of, I start reading it and I'm like, wow, that's, that's, such a, that's just a section of what this book is about. It's just a portion of what John is writing about. 
So then I started wondering, you know, for, for a book that has so much more, for, for uh, a prophecy that gives us so much information, how did we as a church and how did society get to the point that we were just focused on these monstrous or scary things? How did we get so focused on just such a small section of what it all is really representing? And so I stand here today and I kind of come to the conclusion that it's really a tactic of the enemy. You know, the Satan that was in the garden with Adam and Eve, who was speaking to Eve, hey, did God really say that to you? Did he really tell you not to eat the fruit? The, the Satan, the enemy who, who turned God's word just enough to get them to lose focus on God and cause them to sin is the same enemy who's trying to take revelation, take a promise, take a book that's really supposed to be great and to tear our minds just enough to make us focus on the negatives about it and miss what it really is all about. So I hope today when we leave, we're able to take this book of Revelation and put it in a perspective that doesn't make us scared, doesn't make us confused, doesn't mean we're going to find all the answers, but we'll be able to focus what it truly is about. And that is Jesus Christ. Because sometimes when we read Revelations, it's almost like if you take your prescription glasses off. And we're looking at it, and it's kind of blurry. We can kind of make out what's going on in it. We have some kind of idea of the events taking place. But once we put our glasses on, once everything's made clear, then we can perfectly see who it is that we're looking at. Because the book of Revelation, it can be scary. It can have a lot of events. But if we're really going to try to understand what it's about, then we need to change our perspective, not to be looking at the details of what is going on, but who it's supposed to be directing us towards. Because even when we look at when John was writing it, think about where he was. You know, it's written by the disciple John, He's the last remaining of the original 12. We know Judas betrayed Jesus. The other 10 died for their faith. They lived their lives for God, and, and they, they died the martyr's death. And so now we're left with John. And, and John is at a point where there is an emperor in control who's saying, I am the final authority. I am the Lord. I am the ultimate one in charge. All people should bow down to me. And John is telling him, no, I've seen the Lord. I've seen the final authority. His name is Jesus, and that is not you. And because of that, he ends up getting banned to an island. And he ends up writing this revelation. He writes what God gives him on that island to remind the church, hey, there might be some tough times. There might be some tough things that happen, but we always have to focus on who is at the end, and that is Jesus. Pastor Jack Hayford puts it best. He says, revelation isn't an invitation to speculation, but it's a summons to adoration. It's a call to focus on the glory of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to do today. We're going we're gonna to break down Revelation. We're not going to read the whole thing, but, but what I want us to do is break it into five sections. And I believe that in each of those five sections, we can see 
a description of who Jesus is and who Jesus is going to be when he comes back at the end. And I encourage you guys that once we go through this, um, to take some time on your own and read through the book. And I encourage you that when, when you're reading, look for these characteristics of Jesus in it. And I hope and I trust that when you do that, if you open it and read through it, it's not going to be something that scares you, but hopefully it's going to be something that excites you. Because everything that we believe as Christians, everything we believe as believers is a promise that we can see in Scripture that is fulfilled in this final book of Scripture. So before we jump in, will you pray with me for a second? Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope and the life that we have in you, God. Lord, I pray that you just prepare our hearts, you open our hearts and our ears for what it is that you have in store for us today. And Lord, we don't have a spirit of of fear and timidity, Lord, but we come in expectancy for what it is that you have in store for us. I pray that you speak to us today, God, that when we leave here, we're, we're not fearful of the future, but we are excited for your promise. Lord, be with us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So if we're breaking Revelation down to five sections, we start with chapters one through three. And what we see here is Jesus defined as the Alpha and the Omega. Say it with me. Alpha. Try Alpha and Omega. We'll work on it. We'll try one more time. But um, he is the Alpha and the Omega, which... In, in the Greek alphabet is the first and the last letter. So he is the beginning and the end. In verse uh, 7 and 8 of chapter 1, it says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Later on in verse 14, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And what's so great about this promise is that if we look in the book of Hebrews, we know that double-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, it isn't, it isn't just a weapon of destruction, but it is the word of God. Scripture calls the word of God like a double-edged sword. So out of Jesus' mouth is the word of God. The same word that we remember spoke the heavens and the earth into creation. When the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created with it. All the way to the point that we know man fell, man sinned, and then what happened? That word became flesh. Jesus came to earth and he dwelt among us. And he made the sacrifice on the cross that we couldn't make on our own. But the word came down and died for our sins so that When John sees him coming at the end, he will also have the final say. He was the alpha in the beginning, and he will be the omega in the end. And if you read these chapters, what's great is when you see John, John sees him for the first time as that final authority. 
And he drops down to his knees and he is weeping because all he can do is acknowledge who Jesus is at that time. And it is a promise that he is coming back and he will have that final say. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Number two, we move past chapters one and three and we move to chapter four and five. And he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the Lamb of God. Say, Lamb of God. We're getting there. We're working on it. It's good. Revelation says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he is that sacrificial lamb of God. And the people reading this at the time would understand that to be when John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God. And even when we look at the Old Testament, we we think of when when the people of Israel would sin and and they would do wrong. And what would they have to do? They would have to take a, a perfect lamb and they would have to sacrifice it to pay back for their sins. And so what they would have to do is they would have to take their hand, put it on the head of a lamb, and what was represented there is the transfer of the sin from their life into this lamb so that the lamb was made sinful and then it was killed as a punishment for that sin, as the justified sacrifice that needed to be made for that sin and the blood was spilt. And that's what we celebrate when we look at the cross. Because that is what Jesus did to us. He transferred the sins from our life and put it on his shoulders. And he bared the sins of the world. And he took them to the cross and he died for each transgression we made. He made that ultimate sacrifice that we couldn't make for ourselves. So when John sees him in this moment, he sees him as that sacrificial lamb. And he sees him as someone that can open the scrolls. Because when you read Revelation, they talk about this scroll. And the scroll is basically, in your notes, it says it's like a last will and testament. So, so if someone were to die, they basically, you would read the will and it's like, I would like this done with my belongings. This is my final request. This is what I would like to see happen. So that when the will is read, it is put into action. Okay, we read what is supposed to be done, and now we're going to do it. And that's what this scroll is for, for the earth and for the end times. And so John was looking around, and John is like, can anyone open this scroll? Is anyone worthy to see how it is that it's supposed to play out at the end? And they couldn't find anyone, and there was a sense of panic until they saw Jesus, who was that ultimate sacrifice, who paid that final price. And it was him who was worthy to open that scroll. And when he opened that scroll, it's the beginning of what's happening at the end. The beginning of the end. And so then it says, even, even in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, They sang that new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And when that happens, it leads us to, to the third character that we can see of Jesus. And Jesus is the righteous judge who will come to righteously judge the earth. And this happens in chapters 6 through 18. So, so if you 
come in with any preconceived knowledge of Revelation, if you think of anything you think of, of the horsemen, the locusts, any of the bad things, you can probably see that in this section in the middle, chapter 6 through 18. And what's happening at this time is we see Jesus coming and doing what he has always promised us he will do, that he will judge the earth, he will judge evil, he will judge Satan and finish what he has started. And I'll be honest, when you read it, when you go through and actually read how it plays out, it sounds scary. And you kind of reach a moment where you're like, wow, that sounds really bad. That sounds really terrible for the people on the other side. And you might even think that it's not fair. But the example I always love to use is is if you you were to hear of someone who goes out and murders 100 people, and they're standing before a judge, and, and, and the judge just tells them, don't worry about it. There's no punishment for that. You're free to go. That's not justice. You know, it might be nice for that person. It it, it might be lucky for the person that did the wrong deed, but we can't sit there and look at that and say, that is a justice way to go about it. Because we serve a just God and we know that there is a payment to be made. And that's why his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ is so crucial for us, is so powerful because it was a payment that we couldn't make on our own. And so when this judgment comes, there is still time to accept that gift from Jesus. But he is a just God. And in chapter 16, verse 5, it says, Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. And that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, but but at the end of the day, it is just and it is right and it is what makes God who He is. And it's what truly can make us thankful for the gift that he gave us in Jesus being that sacrificial lamb. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is that sacrificial lamb for us. And then he is that righteous judge. And that brings us to point four. Um, In chapters 19 and 20, we see Jesus as the king of kings as he returns with his church. And in scripture it says, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword, we see it again, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what I love about this is that it makes me think about when Jesus came to earth. And it makes me think about him being that child in the manger. And if you remember, when when the Jews were waiting for the Messiah, when they were waiting for their Savior to come back, they were thinking of a warrior. They were thinking of a king. They were thinking of someone that was going to come and overpower the nations. 
But then they see Jesus and they see this child and they're like, eh, it's not quite what we had in mind. That's not what we were expecting. But when Jesus is here, he reminds us, no, I am that king. That time is going to happen. But before I can do that, something else has to be taken care of first. That payment has to be made. I need to come and, and go to the cross first. And what I love about it is when he comes back as this king of kings, not only is he going to be that triumphant king, not only is he going to have that army behind him, not only is he going to do all those things that Israel was expecting him to do, but it's going to be greater than anything they could have imagined because it's not just going to be the earthly nations, but it is going to be dominating hell and evil for all of eternity. And it is going to be a promise fulfillment that they could have never imagined. And that's something to be celebrated. And that's something that we don't have to fear as his followers. We don't have to fear, but we can rejoice in. Because not only is he that sacrificial lamb, but he is that triumphant king that's coming back. And then finally, um, in chapters 21 and 20, he is the bridegroom coming to take his bride, the redeemed, that's us, to the heavenly city. And what's great about here in Revelation 22, verse 17, we see and hear the promise that we've been promised all along. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And I'll be honest, as a, as a guy, it's hard, it's hard to take in Jesus as the bridegroom coming for his bride um, at first. But my wife and I are actually, we're coming up on, we're coming up on two years of marriage. Um, so it's still fresh in my mind, our wedding day. And I think about that day, and I think about the fun that was had, you know, hanging out with my friends before, it, some of the details, the last-minute odds and ends that we had to take care of, all types of random stuff. It was a very eventful weekend. And all of it is good, and all of it was fun. But then there's that moment where I'm finished getting ready, I'm with the groomsmen, and then I leave. And I was by myself, and I sit there, and I'm just waiting. And they tell me, sit there with your eyes closed, mind your business. And it was hot. Um, but then I get that tap on my shoulder, you know, and, and I turn around and I see Natalie for the first time that day in her dress. And it's, and it's no longer the events of the weekend. It's no longer the odds and ends. It's no longer the other people. It's no longer my girlfriend or my fiance or the person I will spend the rest of my life with. But right there in that moment, it is me and my bride and nothing else matters. And 
if that moment is just a fraction of what we experience at the end, then anything else could happen. And in that moment when we rejoice and when it's just us and the bridegroom who is Christ, everything else will be unimportant. Because all those things we hear about, all those things that might take place are leading up to that moment where we are there with Jesus and it's just us and him and we rejoice in that. And the question is, are you guys going to know each other when that moment happens? Because we sit here and, and we rejoice as believers in the fact that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb, the Judge, the King, the Bridegroom. But before all those things, we acknowledge him as our Savior who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And once we put the lenses on and once we see clearly who Jesus is, that's when the end becomes something to celebrate. And that's when we say, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. So the band is going to lead us in a time of worship. But before that, I just ask you to close your eyes real, real quick. And I don't know where, where you are in your walk right now, but Pastor Stan said a, the other week that, that we don't want a time like this to go without at least offering you the opportunity. You know, maybe you see all the events. Maybe, maybe you can notice God working in your life or, or notice those things about Jesus in your life, but you haven't put the lenses on. You haven't seen him as your savior. And maybe you feel him pulling on your heart today that, that you want to make that decision that you want to acknowledge who Jesus is as your Savior. So if that's you today, with eyes closed, I just ask you, could you just raise your hand real quick just so that we can pray with you? Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the cross. you didn't just forgive us for our personal sins, but that you are coming back. And that that is something to be celebrated. And Lord, we leave here today with expectancy and acknowledging who you are as our soon coming King, Lord. That the end isn't something to be worried about, isn't something to be nervous about, but it's to be celebrated because of what you've done. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.